You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that timing is everything when your brain listens to music. You've probably felt the urge to tap along to music at least some of the time, and new research now tells us why that happens. It turns out that recognizing rhythms doesn't involve just parts of the brain that process sound. It also relies on the brain region that's in charge of how you move. This is probably why we like to dance. When an area of the brain that plans movement was disabled temporarily, people struggled to detect changes in rhythms in music. So some people really don't have rhythm if that part of the brain doesn't work well. This study was the first to connect humans' ability to detect rhythms to the posterior parietal cortex, which is the brain region that's associated with planning body movements as well as some higher level functions like paying attention and perceiving three dimensions. When you're listening to rhythm, you're making predictions about how long the time interval is between the beats and where those sounds are going to fall, which is what the research found. Those predictions are part of a system scientists call relative timing, which helps the brain process repetitive sounds like a musical rhythm. Now, this wasn't in the research, but your heartbeat works the same way. If your heartbeat is beating on a regular, very, very set interval, it actually means you're stressed. And if there's variance in the rhythm, it means you're not stressed and actually able to handle more. That's called heart rate variability. This is the first research that found that posterior parietal cortex is necessary for relative timing. And we're seeing tons more research into how the brain processes time, sound, and movement. And this has broad implications for understanding how humans listen to and decipher music and speech, and even for treating diseases like Parkinson's. It's not enough just to upgrade your mitochondria or just to eat the right foods. You actually want your brain to work well as well. You have to eat the right foods for your brain to work, but that's not all the work we have to do. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Before we get going, just a quick shout out to greatest.com. This is a website that for many years has been doing a very detailed quantifiable analysis of the top health influencers online. And they come up with a list of 100 people that are the most impactful. And I was really honored when it came out and I was named to the list at number 16, where they called me the highly caffeinated high fat executive. So thanks, Greatest, for the shout out. And I counted about 40 friends or people who have been guests on the show so far. And it's a, it's a great honor to be listed and just to be able to help people and to surround myself with so many great minds. Speaking of great minds, today's guest is an author and a motivational speaker named Janine Roth. Her pioneering books were among the first to link compulsive eating and perpetual dieting with deeply personal and spiritual issues that go far beyond food, weight, and body image. And she's found that 
We eat the way we live, and our relationship to food, money, and love is a direct reflection of our deepest held beliefs about ourselves, the amount of joy, abundance, pain, and scarcity that we think we have or that we're allowed to have. And you've probably heard of Janine's books. She's written 11 best-selling books, including Women, Food, and God, which is an incredibly popular book. And she just came out with a new one called This Messy, Magnificent Life, a field guide, which was published in early March. As you know, I'm all about performance for Bulletproof Radio. It turns out that happy people perform better. And Janine has done a lifetime of work on figuring out happiness, food, and emotions. And we're going to go deep on that stuff. Janine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. Janine, how did you get so into food? Like what, what happened? Tell me how you got started long ago. From being crazy, <laughs> just living in a hell realm with food, gaining and losing over a thousand pounds. Wow. At one point, doubling my weight, mostly during the 17 years I was gaining and losing all that weight. So I didn't, was. You didn't weigh a thousand pounds, but you just kept losing and gaining the way I was. Losing used to as and well. gaining every couple of weeks. Wow. And mostly I was overweight. I was 20, 30 pounds overweight. Then at some point I decided I was going to be thin and that was that. And so I limited myself to 150 calories a day, jogged four miles a day, lost a lot of weight, stayed at that weight, 80 pounds for a year and a half. And then I, I couldn't stand that anymore. Uh, I always say that for every diet, there is really an equal and opposite binge. And I did the equal and opposite binge part. And I just doubled my weight in two months, gained 80 pounds. Wow, that's a lot of clothes you had to buy. It was a lot of clothes. Nobody recognized me. I went from a teeny little size two to I couldn't fit into any clothes. And it was at that point that I decided I was done. I actually became suicidal I figured if this is what my life was going to be like for the rest of my life, losing and gaining weight and the self-loathing that perpetuated it, then I didn't want to keep living. So I might take maybe a couple of weeks away from killing myself or a couple of days. I hadn't actually set the time, but I had decided that I was going to do it. I went to the bookstore to look up, because it was before the internet, <laughs> to look up drugs and guns. And really, the best way seemed like driving my car off the cliffs. And I found a book that actually made me think about the whole relationship with food and become curious about it. And so I became curious about it. And What was that book? It was called Fat is a Feminist Issue. Wow. So that's not a book most of us have read. <laughs> no, no. And what shifted in your mind to, to change your relationship to food? I realized that it wasn't about the food, that it was about how I felt about myself and about what was driving me to eat the food. And I had never really considered that. I thought it was just about willpower. Yeah, it's not. No. And I thought it was about calories. And... Mostly I thought that if I lost weight, I would love myself. I would be happy. I would be re relaxed. Everything would be fine. I would look like my friends Penny and Maddie when I went to high school. And I would be, I would just be a, a happy camper. And of course I had lost weight many times and it hadn't done that. So I decided that I was going to stop dieting. I was going to stop binging and I was going to really listen to what my body wanted and also look at what I believed about food. Having weighed 300 pounds, I understand that that self-loathing. Like you look in the mirror, you're like, I don't like this. I don't want this. 
And that programming says, I'll be happy when. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, had, I made $6 million when I was 26. And I told a friend at the same company where everyone was making all this crazy money. Um, I said, you know, I'll, I'll be happy to make $10 million. Right. I'm like, what kind of a jerk move? And the thing is, if you're not happy with $6 million, you're not going to be happy with 10 And same thing, you know, I'll, I'll be happy when I lose the weight. And doesn't that's not really what happiness comes from. And what I want to know, are you happy now? So you're asking me personally, yeah, yeah, personally if I'm are happy. you happy now? Yes. After all of your, your yeah, and it's not even so much about happiness. It is that, but it's about contentment. I I realized after I did lose the weight and I got to be my natural weight, and then I've had the good fortune to be in a relationship with somebody that I really love for many years. There was still a way that I was putting my life on hold until I got X. Right. When I get a best-selling book, I'll be happy. Mm. When I make X amount of money, I'll be happy. When I look a certain way, I'll be happy. And no matter what bar I ever reached, I always, like you. Yep. You had six million, now I'll have 10 million. And you know, I'll tell you, Dave, when I really got it, the thing that changed my life entirely about happiness, now this is a little different than food and weight, but they intertwine, was when we lost every every cent of our money in 2008, every cent of it. Oh, no. Yes. Yep. And uh, in the Bernie Madoff debacle. So I got a phone call just saying, he's in handcuffs, you've lost all your money. My husband and I had over the years invested more and more with him. We had already gotten embezzled by a financial advisor. And then a good friend of ours took pity on us and said, come, come, my family is in this thing and oh. we've been in it for 30 years and come be in it. I'm telling everybody right away, do not take financial advice ever from me because I went from <laughs> a financial person who embezzled our money to Bernie Madoff. So just run in the opposite direction if I'm ever giving financial advice. But what I learned then that has, has everything to do with happiness now is that if I was going to live through that experience, if I was going to make it through the night, I didn't know if we could afford to stay in our house. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know anything. My husband and I had put 30 years of retirement savings in wow. there and it was gone. I was terrified. I was uh, panicked. I was ashamed of myself because who puts all their money in one place? I was anxious. I mean, I, I don't even know how to describe how I felt. And I realized through a couple of good friends who consistently said to me, nothing of any value has been lost. And at first I was furious at them. And my response was, this is not the time to be spiritual. This <laughs> is the time to be petrified. I realized that I had to focus on what I did have, not what I didn't have what I could find, not what I had lost. And before we lost our money, I didn't know what enough was. There was always a sense of not enough, more, got to get more. No matter what I had, the bar was always raised because I was never paying attention to what I actually had. And in order to sleep through the night, I had to start paying attention to this moment, to the feeling of my foot on the pavement, to the cup of tea in my hand, to the fact that I had a teacup, to the fact that I had tea, to the fact that I still had breath and a body and a life. And, 
And that changed how I was in myself completely and has changed me since then. That was 10 years ago. And I, and it's, that changed my life. The WHO says that losing you know, your life savings is a stressor on par with losing a family member, you know, losing your home, like it's a very big stressor. I lost my $6 million two, two years after I made it and went through yes. something similar. Uh, where like, good God, like, like, wait, if I wasn't happy then, and that's one of the things that sparked me to figure out the personal development side yes. of, of biohacking, where it's like, okay, <laughs> if I'm not happy, no matter what, uh, then what's going to make me happy? Right. And that isn't that the question? Yeah. If I'm not happy, no matter what, then what is going to make me happy? So, so for people listening, most people haven't had the great fortune to you know, amass a, a decent amount of money. And then and then, well, the, maybe the misfortune of losing it, although I don't look at it as a misfortune in my life. I, it taught me a lot. But like, like how, how do you get to that state that you're talking about, the one that I'm talking about and still working on? And you, you have more experience than I do on this. Give us, give us the recipe. How do you do this? It is not hard, but it takes vigilance. But what you t- are talking about, biohacking and learning, all that takes that all that takes the motivation, the desire to do that. What we're talking about in terms of happiness or contentment or presence, that's another way of saying it, is you are vigilant about paying attention. It all comes down to attention. What are you paying attention to now? So what do you recommend people pay attention to? Now is okay, what I the recommend. present moment. What, and so what that means is, are you feeling your feet on the floor? Do you feel your butt in your chair? Are you aware of your breath? When you walked into the room that you're sitting in, did you happen to notice the room? Do you, do you spend your life in waiting rooms of your life, meaning it doesn't actually matter where you are? You just kind of drift in, you sit down, and you're in your mind the whole time. Do you show up? Do you arrive? You know, I, I did a month-long retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist master, and he kept saying, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. So you don't arrive anywhere. It's not like I ever get to that place because in any moment, life is filled with challenges. Somebody I know gets sick. Somebody I know was diagnosed with cancer yesterday. My stepfather is 94. He seems like he's on his way out. There, There are constant, multiple challenges. What do you do with those? you show up. And most of us are so in our minds and so scared of really being here that we're afraid to feel our feelings. We're engaged with what I call the crazy ant in the attic, which is the voice of judgment and shame, and we believe that voice. And we're not aware of the goodness that's already in our lives. So you're focusing really on gratitude for the present moment. I'm focusing on attention and appreciation. So I ask my students a lot, tell me five things that are not wrong right now. That are not wrong, okay. What's not wrong right now? Because the brain, as you know, is geared to see what is wrong and really pay attention to the threats. That's how it was developed. That's how we all developed. It did not develop to pay attention to goodness. In order to actually pay attention there, that takes work. Now, that doesn't take a huge amount of work. Some brain scientists say 12 seconds, five times a day 
That's one minute a day of actually deeply experiencing the good. Not just, oh, gratitude, okay, five things at the end of the day that I liked. Okay, my kids smiled at me. I ate a good dinner, had a night, you know, just like I'm, I'm alive. I'm really feeling it in your body, like taking it in. It's the same thing with eating. When I work with people in food, I see that they have one bite that's in their mouth and then their fork is, it's on the way up to the mouth with the next bite. And I say to them, okay, so you're eating for the hunger to come. How can you possibly feel full if you're not letting yourself have what you already have? What's in your mouth? If you're always focused on the next one and the next bite and the next experience and the next racing of the bar, you never get filled. So it's sort of the same thing as the next million dollars when you have six it, million dollars. It, it's all the same. Okay. You see that we're, we're constantly living, waiting for the next moment, but the only problem is that when that next moment comes, because you've gotten so used to waiting for the next moment, that you don't recognize the moment when it comes, because you, that's how you're going, that's how you're living, that's how you're seeing, which eventually means that most people miss their lives. So we get to the end, and it's like, I forgot to live. I forgot what was really important. That's a pretty that's a pretty big statement. I'm having a hard time translating that. So, so I'm imagining a listener right now who has a plate of chocolate chip cookies in front of them. Yep. These would have been one of my kryptonite foods. And mine too. I, I remember that I, I'd sit in these meetings uh, in Silicon Valley, and they'd always bring a plate of them in the afternoon, and they'd set them on the conference room table, and I'd be like, "I'm not going to eat the cookie," and then. There'd be this voice in my head, it's like, eat the cookie, eat the cookie. And you say no, like a few times. And you're like, I'll just have half the cookie. And then after it's like, oh, I'm such a failure. I didn't have enough willpower. Like I wasn't strong enough to resist and, and things like that. How would, and this is something that the people who have even just an extra 20 pounds of weight, but if you have 50 pounds or 100 pounds like I did, that voice is really loud and demanding. How do you, how do you turn that off? How, how do you change that situation? So that's a multifactorial answer. Okay. <laughs> it's not just, okay, well, here's how to do it. As you know, it's not about willpower. So that was never going to work yeah. with the plate of it, chocolate. It wasn't chip. a moral failing that ate the cookie, right? No, no. It was, yeah, that looks good. And when you start arguing with the, I want it, no, I shouldn't have it, no, I want it, no, I shouldn't have it, no, I want it, no, I should then you're not even asking the right question there. The right question is what I say is what will help your body in that moment to thrive? Is this something, if you know what you want to do is feel more and more alive, is that cookie going to work? So we're not talking about um, what you can't have here. We're talking about what you want and what you can have to give yourself what you want. So it's not freedom from so much. It's not Xing out all of these foods. I never found that that worked for me. It was which are the foods through, and you call that chocolate chip cookie your kryptonite food. So that would just take you down, yeah? Oh, yeah. You eat a bunch of sugar like that, a bunch of gluten, and you're probably not going to feel good. Probably not going to feel good. And so then the question is, is this how you want to feel? So, so what happens is I ask people with food to pay very close attention 
to what they eat, how they eat. You know, a good friend of mine says, junky food leads to junky thoughts. Yeah. Leads to feeling junky altogether. So a couple of times of that, or many times of that, of feeling terrible and feeling spaced out and depressed and unhappy and no energy, you, you, there's got to be something in there recognizing that. Most people have given up feeling good in their lives. They, they've given it up. And so the chocolate chip cookie looks like, well, gee, I can't have what I really want, so I might as well eat that chocolate chip cookie instead. And so this is what gets down to how you eat is how you live, or how you do anything is how you do anything. So, or how you do anything is how you do everything. So if you've given up on having what you really, really want, which is to feel good, or whatever it is, find work that you love, right. have energy to move. If you've given up on that in some secret place of yourself, and so you figure out, eh, well, you know what? I can't have what I really want, so what I'm gonna do is eat chocolate chip cookies, eat this, it's better than not having anything. It gives me a little sweetness in my life. Then that's a belief. That's where it gets down to core beliefs that you have about what you can have. So sort of cheating to feel good doesn't really work because it doesn't make you feel good, but you think it will. Well, it looks in the moment, just an initial moment, like the best you can have. And since you can't have the other stuff that you really want, you might as well have the chocolate chip cookies. Now, that might not have been going on for you when you were sitting in that meeting in the afternoon. It might not have been that detailed. It wasn't that clear, but I mean, I, I, was, a, I was very successful uh, in my early career, um, but I was you know, anxious. I didn't even know I was anxious because if you're always anxious, you don't know it because it's your normal state. And if you had told me I was anxious, I would have just told you you were an idiot and told you to go pound sand and probably sworn at you. Because I was also a little bit angry, which comes with anxiety. And when I ate my cookies, I would even act more like that, right? Or even worse, like diet soda. <laughs> like that stuff would just turn me into a total jerk. But all that was invisible to me because I just didn't know, right? And when you, when, at least when I stopped doing it, I started feeling that there was a difference there. But I don't think I had a conscious thing like this is all I can get. But I knew like, like basically I'm in pain. Like, and there's emotional pain. I was also in physical pain because yes. I had you know, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and I was obese and arthritis and all this stuff. So it was almost maybe like a bit of a, like a medication. Like at least I'll feel good for five minutes if I eat this. And yeah, I, food as drugs. There's a lot of that going on though with, with people. And, and it, it's not at all about willpower or moral character. It, it's something else. But how, how do we break through that? So we realize, okay, like I might be doing this, but what's the replacement behavior for that? So- Suffering is a very good motivator, is what I have to it say. Sure is. You were in pain. You were. You had chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. You were angry. You were anxious. You were unhappy. What made you stop? Uh, you know, there's a certain point where you hit rock bottom, and that's right? what I'm talking about. Yeah, but for everyone listening, I don't want them to go through all the crap I went through. Like, we shouldn't have to hit rock bottom to change this. Well. That's why you and I are talking. You and I are models of, and here to tell the tale of hitting rock bottom so that other people don't have to. We hit rock bottom and come back to say, so here's what rock bottom is like, but here's what it feels like on the way to rock bottom, which is, eh, I don't feel so good today. 
I don't have so much energy. I'm walking around slightly anxious, agitated, a little bit angry. The way that I talk to my kids, the way that I talk to my spouse, the way that I talk to my colleagues at work, not so good. There's something a little off. We each know, and anybody listening to this absolutely knows if there is a place inside them that feels like they're missing their lives, that there's a promise of what they, they could be, of what their lives could be, and they're not, they're not hitting it. Or I don't even mean to say hitting it. They're not living it. Something's lacking. Something's missing. And so you don't have to hit rock bottom to feel that, to know that. To, you can be slightly unhappy. Most people are slightly unhappy. You don't have to you don't have to go to where I went to, the verge of suicide, or where you went to. But to tell the truth though of where you are is really helpful. I wake up and I'm not I feel a little dissatisfied. I'm not really present in my life. I read a story of a woman, she had her first baby, she was breastfeeding, and she knew she was addicted to the internet when breastfeeding her first baby, she was reading on her on her phone about where to get the best lamps. And so <laughs> she was absolutely missing the experience. So she got it, okay, this has to change. We all have wake-up experiences like that constantly. We get sick, something happens, somebody we know gets sick. You, I mean, you don't have to hit rock bottom to have those kinds of experiences, everyday challenges. A couple of years ago, I broke my back and it was, it, I was in radical pain and that woke me up to the fact that I wasn't really, really living in my body. Do you ever think you're just terribly unlucky? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't. you've gained and lost a thousand pounds. You lost your retirement. You broke your back. Like... What, what's going on, Janine? I am, I, you know, I have a PhD in catastrophes. <laughs> okay. And for a while, and this isn't true anymore, well, maybe you could count the back part. Yeah, okay. But I, catastrophes or extreme situations made me pay attention. What's happened when people rock climb? You know, they have to be in the moment. Why do people rock climb like that or... They climb up to Everest and then they just want to go back and do it again. It's a flow stage, right? Yes, there's a, but you're present. Your mind can't wander one second away. Otherwise, you miss, you miss the next grab. And it's the presence that people love, that sheer feeling of aliveness and joy. I'm here. Wow. Because if you really wake up, to the present moment, and I guess it's taken me a lot of catastrophes <laughs> to do that, then what happens is you see that that's in every moment. You don't have to lose your money or break your back or gain and lose over a thousand pounds to find that in this moment now, in this moment. What percentage of your time are you in that state today? Oh, I you know what? It depends on the week. It depends on the day. It just depends on how I slept the night before. I am, this is what I'll say. I am always in, uh, in a paying attention to how I'm expressing what's going on with me, how I'm talking to my husband, 
how I'm talking to people on the phone and if I'm feeling cranky inside. And if I am, then I ask myself what's going on. It's no longer okay to act it out. I would say in a general way, I'm in that state 75% of the time. What percentage were you in that state when you were 20? I was a well. First of all, when I was twenty, I I don't even know what state I was in. I was <laughs> I think I was just looking for more, looking for maybe this was going to do it. That's when I desperately wanted to be thin. I went on a three week. When I was twenty, and I remember this because I was in San Diego, I went on a three week diet, the all brown diet. It was the coffee diet, Shasta cream soda, and cigarette diet. And so I did that when I was, and that's what I was like in my 20s, desperate to be thin, but also loathing myself. I, I, you know, and I I do want to say that there was this sense of incompleteness and and shame and, and loathing. And so that's what I also felt like, you know, I just needed to address with this crazy aunt in the attic stuff. So the, the story of this is that you've gone from spending a very small amount of, of your time in that state, if ever, and with a lot of self-loathing to further down your life, your career to shifting where most of the time you're in that state of paying attention to what's going on right now. So the amount of presence in your life uh, shifted dramatically. And that can serve as a lesson for everyone listening. Uh, and for me that you know, as we become uh, better at mastering our own biology, at mastering our own thoughts, the amount of time that you're present. And presence is also a variable, right? It, it's not like you're 100% present right now. If you're 80% present, it's better than 10% present. It's a slider. And but, if you're 10%, it's better than no presence. Right, so there's always a little room for improvement in that. Um, but that that's kind of, kind of the path through life. And if we can help people listening figure out that that's something that matters, that they can do on a second-by-second basis, if you can do that when you're 20 or 25 or 30 instead of waiting until you're 45 or, or 105, whatever, the quality of your life, the quality of your relationships, the way you interact with other people goes up dramatically, which is why I wanted to have you on the show. It does. And I work with a lot of 20-year-olds. I mean, people are coming to this younger and younger and younger. It's fabulous. Fabulous. And they're also connecting what they eat with how they feel. And when I was young, they actually taught us that how you ate had nothing to do with it. It was actually like if you said that effectively, like you're crazy. Yes. And, and so that was really an inhibitor for, for science and for self-awareness. That's gone. Like, like people now grow up knowing, oh, if I eat that, I feel that, and that's okay. Before, if I eat that, I feel that, it just means that I'm not feeling the right things. Therefore, there's something wrong with me. And so it's hard to express the difference in the last 25 years, but it's an awesome time to be a 20-year-old right now because you actually get much better information than before, including your books. I wanted to ask you one more question, Janine. If someone came to you tomorrow of any age and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are your three most important pieces of advice? What would you tell them? First of all, I'd want them to tell me how driven they are by the voice in their heads, by this crazy ant in the attic or what I call the GPS from the twilight zone. (laughs) I'd want to know if they're driven by that. And I tell them to learn how to disengage from that, to realize that voice is not their friend. That's one of the first things I would say. I would say kindness is the second thing, to be kind to themselves 
no matter what's going on, to develop what I call the oh sweetheart voice. Most people have the oh shit voice. They don't have the oh sweetheart voice. They don't know how to turn to themselves when they're feeling lonely, sad, fat, uh, rejected. They don't have any kind of kindness in themselves. And uh, I would say to, to really track what they're eating and see how it's affecting how they're feeling because how they eat and how they choose what they eat. And this was really a big thing for me, even in the last few years, Dave. I, you know, since I started this back in my 20s, um, I've been eating pretty well, but my diet has changed very much over the years, a lot over the years. I started out with raw chocolate chip cookie batter dough balls for the first couple of weeks that I told myself <laughs> I, I didn't have to diet anymore. And then I progressively refined how certain foods felt in my body until the last few years, partly because of your work. Oh, wow. Um, also, just because of working with some fabulous people like Mark Hyman, um, but not Mark Hyman, I've really realized what it feels like to fly inside this body, to eat foods that make me sore. And that has to that has fed my capacity, my my I, I would say um, my creativity, my desire to write more, be more, teach more, speak more. It but without that, when I was still eating foods small as they were, that were kryptonite foods, I, I, you know, I haven't really called them that before, but that were, then that kept bringing me down. And then I kept knowing myself as somebody who was downer than I'm actually capable of. So I would also talk to that person about what they were eating and if they were tracking it and if they could tell how they felt two hours after they ate it, four hours after they ate it, the next day, what's going on? Even two days later. Yes. It, it took me three years in the 90s to figure that out. If I ate like crap on Friday night, my Monday was just bad, but my yeah. Saturday and Sunday were okay. So I, I was like, why, why are Mondays so bad? Garfield was right. <laughs> Uh, but it turns out it was my fault. I just didn't know it. Yeah, so that it's a learning curve. Yeah. Awesome. Janine, thank you for your advice, and thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio. People can find out more about your latest book at what website? JanineRoth.com. And tell me the name of the book. This Messy Magnificent Life. And it's available now. Available now. All right. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Go to bulletproof.com slash iTunes, which will take you right to the Apple page so you can leave a review. And also consider reading Janine's book. She's spent a huge amount of time looking at not just the biochemistry of food, which is an area where I, where I care a lot, but the psychology of food. And if you find that you're eating for reasons that aren't uh, to, to fuel yourself and that you know that you've got something going on there, there's knowledge here about um, presence and about gratitude and about some of the softer things that we can actually measure with neuroscience, with neurofeedback. But she's got a life's work that's frankly included a lot of suffering that has taught her some really powerful things. And she writes really eloquently about this. So I'd highly recommend that you check it out.
A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.